Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today I catch up with longstanding Cub Sydney member, Dan Breeze. Dan and his company, ASY Global, are premium offshore staffing providers with offices in the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam. They are true leaders in the industry, and Dan is an expert in the field. Dan shared with us everything we need to know about how to grow, manage, and maintain the best possible offshore staff team. He explained how you can use offshore to level up your business and to work more on your business than in it. It was a fantastic how-to episode. Enjoy the show. Hey, Dan. Hey, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I know, I know. Well, we should have, I mean, we probably should have had you sooner because as we're just discussing, you must be a member now for five five plus years. Five plus. Isn't it weird to think that we've known each other for five plus years? I know, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's weird how time goes and and, and how the club's evolved. Now, I mean, today uh, a new app has launched. Yeah, well, yeah, new app. You guys have got a new clubhouse opening. Yeah. it's going crazy. Yeah. And actually, let's do a little test for the app. Uh, to all the listeners, I know you don't know much about Dan just yet because we haven't started the conversation, but uh, if you remember, go on the app and, and type uh, Daniel Breeze um, and, um, and and connect with him on the Cub app. You can message him and, and um, if you like what we've got to say, then um, hit him up on the old Cub app. Uh, how good is that? Yeah. Awesome timing. Um Dan, thank you so much for today. Obviously, I mean, you're an incredible entrepreneur because you, you've had businesses in different industries, you've failed businesses, you've been successful in businesses, and and you're also an expert in um, offshore staffing and building offshore teams and, 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 and doing all of that. So really, I just want to kind of go through the whole story with you today. Uh, as one of our longest standing members, we need to be uh, <laughs> highlighting you from the rooftop. So- <laughs> So, uh, and also I, there's a lot about you, like reading your prep sheet, there's actually a lot about you that I, I didn't know uh, about your upbringing and things like that. So, so really, like I said, it's just going to be a great conversation to get to know you better and, and uh, share some knowledge with our listeners. Let's peel a few layers back, eh? Let's do well, First of all, why don't you introduce um, uh, AS White Global? Sure. Just so everyone understands the business you're in and, and kind of what it does. Yep. Um, and, and then we'll talk about your story. So ASY Global is an offshore staffing provider. Uh, we, we kicked off in 2011 and, and effectively what we do is we help Australian businesses uh, connect with the best possible talent in Malaysia, the Philippines and Vietnam to build dedicated offshore teams. What does that mean in a practical sense? I think what in offshore staffing is, is often confused with outsourcing. So if you think about outsourcing, typically what you're doing is you're, you're delegating tasks to a, a company, not to a person, and that company is then delegating almost as like an intermediary down to a, an anonymous team workforce to do the work on your behalf. Whereas offshoring is a little bit different in the sense that you're building something that's dedicated, that's your own. You're not delegating it through an intermediary. Um, you're effectively utilising the provider to help you find the talent, provide the managed services and HR and payroll but effectively you're building something that's your own and you're doing it without necessarily having the international red tape, having to worry about all the other things I've just mentioned, recruitment and facilities and offices and HR, data security and those things. So it ultimately gives you the juice without the squeeze in a lot of instances. We're not really a call centre environment and I think that's probably one of the misconceptions is when we think about outsourcing, we think about call centres and you know, when the phone rings, it's another telemarketer you know, flogging you something. Um, that's not our market. Our, our market probably is more mid mid to senior level talent. So um, if you think about things like accounting and marketing and software development and IT, so that's that's, that's ASW, yeah. Okay, and, and, and it's quite a substantial company now, isn't it? It's na- national or, or? Yeah, so we're, we're 1,200 staff now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone through some, some pretty incredible growth over the last um, five years. Um, or well, 10 years since we started, but five years in particular, we've really gone, accelerated our, our growth. We, we service nationally, so Australian businesses across the whole country, and then ultimately uh, 1,200 staff in, in three countries overseas, and we, we're looking to expand into more countries in the, in the next 12 to 18 months. And so basically, like what you were kind of describing is that it's kind of like a shortcut to have a, a great offshore team because you yep. don't have to worry about all the, you know, how do I find an office, what are the laws and that type of thing. Yep. But also 
what's different, what you guys provide as to going through outsourcing is that you're speaking directly to the people that are providing you that service. They're, they're almost one with you. They're part of the team. That's correct. So ultimately you're building something, What probably the word is integrated. Yeah. They're part of your existing team that has happened. And I think maybe COVID has accelerated this a lot because um, working remotely all of a sudden is really common. You know, before the pandemic, everyone was very um, – you know, how could this possibly work without staff being in my office um, next to me side by side? How can I train someone without them being shoulder to shoulder with me? So I think the pandemic accelerated um, the uptake by way of, um, I guess, the penny dropping for a lot of business leaders saying, oh, you know what, maybe I can do this. Um, yeah, if everyone's going to be working from home anyway, I may as well use the cheaper people. <laughs> well, potentially, yeah, that, that's yeah. part of it. And I think yeah. also the big challenge is that um, onshore, and everyone will probably agree, is that, the, the talent shortage, finding talent here is so hard. You know, um, finding talent overseas is equally as hard. You know, the, unfortunately for us as a provider, the secret is out. So there's great talent available overseas if, if you go through the right channels in order to, to find that talent. Um, but finding good people I think is the, the bane of every business leader's existence and that is onshore or offshore – very hard to find great people. And I think that's something we've done really well. And so why does someone like, for example, let's say I want to build an offshore team. Why would I go through um, like a provider like yourself yep. uh, as opposed to going directly to, I don't know, hire people direct? What's yep. kind of, what's the advantage? There's a, there's a few. Uh, the, the first is unless you have an international entity to be illegal to, mind you, it's, it is pretty common. There's a few cowboys out there. Oh, so it's actually illegal to do it unless you have an international entity in that country or? Well, yeah, ultimately if you're paying someone directly into their bank account, they're not paying any local government taxes, et cetera, or probably declaring that, particularly in the third, some of these developing nations. So aside from, I guess, the political red tape, um, the other really, the, the two others that really string, uh, that come to mind is HR for one, what if something goes wrong, you know, and you need to step in and you don't have the onshore, sorry, the offshore resources by way of governance to step in in the event of a HR matter. Uh, the second is data security. You know, so when we t- talk about, I mean, I'm sure there's some cybersecurity guys in the business, within CUB. Um, if, you, if you think about how far cybersecurity threats have increased through the pandemic, it's one of the things that you're really paying a provider for is to help mitigate that risk. So um, if you can find talent overseas directly, and do it through an intermediary where payroll and HR is supported. Then and absolutely. the office as well. I guess they have the office and there's all that exactly. aspect. And I think the role that – I guess the niche that we fit within isn't necessarily a niche because we we do have a, a large professional services uh, client base. Um, we're not necessarily hiring people to work in their pyjamas from home. We're, we're trying to build something, a dedicated team, um, trying to replicate their onshore culture – Offshore, so so effectively, if it was a cub offshore team, you know they'd be sitting in uh, side by side with the other offshore cubsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I love these cubsters you've started. Yeah. I actually wrote it down and start using them. <laughs> so effectively, what you're doing is you're mirroring your existing culture offshore. Yeah, I guess the other challenge is with an offshore team. Really, it, it's a it's a good solution in the sense of someone who's looking for full time support. It probably isn't the right solution for a business looking for hourly type, ad hoc, freelance type support. And I think that's where outsourcing becomes a, an opportunity. You know, hey, I just need five hours worth of work done. I need two hours worth of contracting work done. That, that's where I think outsourcing can be quite handy. So you're saying it's better for full-time or better for part-time? I'd say offshoring is the solution for a full-time dedicated team member. Okay. Outsourcing probably is the solution for something for where part-time. it's more hourly rate. Okay, yep. And and uh, tell me, you, you haven't always been in offshoring. No. Um, and uh, from from what I read, I, I know you, you didn't necessarily come from an affluent background or anything like that. So I guess where did you start? Where, where did you grow up? Um, sure. And, and, and kind of how did you how did you get into business? So, yeah, you're right. So offshoring has been my career now for the last five years. Um, but sort of growing up, my father was a slaughterman on a cattle station, on a buffalo station in Northern Territory. So we actually grew up on, a, on an abattoir, on a, on a cattle station in um, a place called Tennant Creek in Northern Territory, which isn't the most wonderful place to visit. Uh, we, we then moved to the country, to country Victoria, and my younger brother was born in, in NT. We basically moved down to country Victoria where – 
I spent probably till about 15. Um, my, I, my single parents and my mother raised myself and my brother. We were definitely far from affluent. So we were commission home kids. Mum worked and scraped away. We never went hungry, thankfully. Um, we had a great childhood and sense of sport and friendships and what have you. But it was certainly a, a childhood where um, when you start entering into your high school, you realise, shit, we're poor. You know, like, <laughs> so we left, we left the country, a place called Wangaratta. We, we left Wang when we were, when we were uh, mid-teens and moved to Melbourne, which for me being a country kid was basically like moving, felt like moving to New York. Yeah, you know, like, I can it was imagine. Just, it, was, it was so outside of my comfort zone and I, and I detested it. I hated it. But I, I quickly found sport and I was really fortunate to get drafted into the AFL out of, out of high school as a 17-year-old uh, to – and, and for those, I guess your Melbourne uh, members will know what AFL is. Your Sydney members probably don't. <laughs> but um, it was, yeah, it was it was an exciting time. Um, so I, I then spent three years at, at the Melbourne Demons. I can say that proudly now because they won the flag this year. So, but unfortunately for me, it was it was one an experience. Whilst it was amazing and incredible, um, it was cut short with two consecutive knee reconstructions. So um, that was a childhood dream. And for the childhood dream to come to an end after only three years was was crushing. But I came away with a lot of learnings and a lot of great friendships and experiences. But I then realised I've got to go and get a job. Um, it's how, over. How did that? That would have been crushing, I can imagine. But would you say that that's have had a positive impact on on you in some sort of way? I think. Um, you know, I've still been very fortunate to have a lot of great friendships who, was, you know, who finished their careers and went on to have 10 and 15-year careers in, in AFL. Um, I think one of the – when I look back at it, and I, I've been listening to, you know, Mojo Crow and a few of these types of podcasts, and I, I look back now, definitely it was a blessing for me in the sense that I think when, you, when you're that young and I was 20, 21, you still got a whole bunch of ambition and drive and – given that that opportunity and, and my whole thing was given I had come from a challenging upbringing, I was determined to succeed in something. And when, and when the AFL thing fell through for me, I came away pretty bitter initially because I felt like I was um, working harder than anybody, you know, as far as trying to get, get out in the field. But unfortunately the body just didn't let me do it. But I then channeled that, that energy into, into business. And, and that's been, a real blessing for me. I've, I've been fortunate and unfortunate in business and um, yeah, some incredible experiences as a result of it. I just think what you described is really important because you, uh, there's two people in this world and honestly at Cub there's really only one type of person because they're the only people that kind of get into Cub um, or our, our demographic of member, I guess. But, but there's two types of people. There's people that the world happens to them and, you know, oh, life cheated me. It's not my fault or, or everything's against me. Life's against me. I'm not lucky. I, I don't have the – what do the other kids have in high school? And, oh, I worked hard but, the, you know, life took away my dream or whatever. And then there's people who happen almost to life. It's like, oh, I have the energy. Okay, that option A, boom, that's gone. Where's option B? Bang, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do yeah. that. And it's, that, it's a non-victim mentality. I don't know what's the opposite to a victim, but it's, it's a non-victim mentality. It's a, it, you know, that I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm confident mentality. And, and that's almost, and I'd imagine that being quite hard for you as well, because I mean, coming from a, a background with um, uh, not much means and, and that type of thing, but I think it would be easy to say, oh, you know, the world's against me. I'm not supposed to do anything. Yeah. But for some reason, that's not what you do. You did. For some reason, you you push forwards, and I'm just curious as to why. Well, I think um, that's a good question. I mean, I certainly when when the opportunity with football finished, no doubt I was I was I was angry. I was I'm one of those guys that I think, um, and you mentioned earlier, there's different kinds of people and how they deal with pressure or stress or in unfortunate circumstances. And for me, I I really just buried myself into work. Um, that was my way of dealing with the disappointment and um, whether healthy or unhealthy, that was kind of my approach and it always has been my approach. When things are going really difficult, um, I, I become quite singular in my mindset on focusing on something and it helps me deal with whatever the hell's going on. Um, others probably go and see a therapist or what have you. That was my way of dealing with it. So I think um, whilst I was definitely bitter and disappointed on what had happened, you know, 
life wasn't going to serve me any favours by sitting there and dwelling on things. So um, I was fortunate that I, I'd had, again, through sport and through family, I, I did have some some network and your product is creating great networks. So I leveraged on my, off my own network as a young kid. I got into, into property, uh, into real estate, and that taught me a, a lot um, in the sense of negotiations, marketing, um, prospecting. Sales. Sales 101. Mm. And I think when you're dealing with property, you're dealing with, um, with people's usually their most prized asset. So it was a steep learning curve for me. Um, and I, I spent three to four years in, in that and I, I just – after a few years, I probably realised that it wasn't perhaps my calling. I, whilst I was fortunate, I, I did well in the industry. I I felt like there was maybe a higher calling or something I needed to throw myself into, and that's when I started my own business at about twenty three or twenty four. Which um, was which was a, a menswear business, a men's retail business. The concept was pretty straightforward. So we're thinking, gee, we're going back to two thousand and six. So I'm feeling a bit old. Think how old are you? I'm 30, how old am I? 30, uh, 30 almost 39. Ah, oh, you're still super young. So just aged very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, from a, we, we started a, a mobile retail business. Effectively what we're doing is going into offices and homes and, and doing um, wedding suits for, for, for guys and also office suits for guys wearing business suits, et cetera. And because I'd been wearing a suit in real estate, I knew all I needed to know about, about retail, about clothing. Clearly, I didn't have any clue. And <laughs> but, we, but but in your defence, real estate agents are probably the most common suit wearers yeah. in today's yeah. society. Like they yeah. have the biggest suiting wardrobe. So I'm sure you felt like <laughs> yeah, you, well, you was, knew the retail business. I mean, <laughs> suiting we, back to we front. bluffed it all the way. Yeah. Trust me. So and look, it was uh, so myself and a, and a business partner at the time. We we kicked off in 2006 um, out of our homes and. We effectively then spent the next 10 years growing that business. And um, I think I look back now, you know, some of the – we literally made every possible mistake, every mistake. (laughs) Like I would shudder to think how much money we put down the drain by making the wrong mistakes. Um, But look, overall, uh, I look back, you know, quite proud of what we managed to achieve. A kid, as I mentioned, obviously had a a challenging upbringing, um, you know, Certainly wasn't any any opportunities um, given to me. They were all me taking them, and I think we then built a business that was a multi million dollar revenue business from our bedroom, effectively our apartment, um, with no experience in the with industry no business experience. or business experience. Yeah. Um, we ended up having we ended up creating a a national business in at uh, one point in four states. We had uh, about thirty staff, and it was um, you know a really great learning curve for building a business for, for, for two guys that had absolutely no idea what they were doing. Um, so, yeah, then I, I sold that. Uh, oh, I actually, I, I stepped away from that and that was a really challenging time after 10 years of building a, a business. What what was it that drew you to, uh, to suiting and menswear? Yeah, I probably, um, I've always had a love for business ownership. You know, so I, re- I always wanted to, not necessarily a particular industry. That I've always been. So you loved business, not the industry. I love the, that. That was just the, the way you could of get, in, get yeah, into business. Creating an idea and then spinning that idea into an income. I understand that because I reckon, like, um, I, like even for myself. I mean, I love business owners, and that's why I kind of cut. But, but, um, but I love business, and I would have started any business just because yeah. I just like. Oh, that's what I wanted. And I think that's quite a common, I think it's a cool thing for people to hear as well. It's like, you don't have to start a business in a certain industry if that's what you want. Obviously you could choose the preferred yeah, exactly. industry for yourself, but sometimes you just want to start a business. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that when I was younger was the people who I, who I could see who were doing well were typically those who were running their own businesses and they weren't necessarily in particular industries or anything along, along those lines. They were just um, carving their own path, you know? So um and, you know, I probably had a bit of an ego as a kid and I thought that if you're running a business, uh, doesn't look that, that, that special, I can do this, you know. So um, how wrong I was as to how challenging it really is, you know. But it, that was my mindset. And I think when you're a, when you're a young kid, you know, you've, you're probably a bit ignorant about the pitfalls and challenges. You just kind of go into it with blind faith. That was certainly my, my approach. And I felt, well, if it doesn't work, I can always go back and do something else, you know. I, I love that, and and I've had debates with people before over the importance of ego. Is it bad? Is it good? And a lot of people say ego is the enemy and that type of thing. But I really disagree. I think you you almost need the ego to tell yourself that you're good enough 
to accomplish or at least try Absolutely to accomplish what, yeah, yeah, you need it. It's it's almost a necessity. Like it, for sure. Like what you're saying. Like that's always how I look. I'm always like, hey, that that person's just built that big tech business. Well, fuck off. If they can do it, I can definitely do it. So now I'm going to start. And I'm going to get an app. Sure. I'm going to do that. It's that ego that tells you you can do that. You can do that. I, I used to tell myself a, a bit of a mantra, and that was, well, there's all these great people living great lives. Why not me? And I thought, well, that was what I told myself always in in business that. Um, all these people doing great things, they're ultimately just saying, well, why not me? And I, I felt, well, um, they haven't been afforded anything other than what I was being afforded. They just went out and did it. So it, it did help. I certainly think from an ego point of view, um, where it probably got me in trouble was not being vulnerable enough to ask for help, you know, and I kind of probably had a bit of a chip in the sense that I'll just do everything on my on my own. You can all get stuff. I'll build an empire. And I think that really got in the way and stifled the growth because I was trying to do um, everything and be everything. And that's certainly why I feel, you know, funnily enough, how things work full circle. Um, now that I'm in this industry that I am in, I can really provide a vehicle for business leaders where they don't feel like they have to do it all. And at the same time, they can have the control that they want. And that's often often the case. Business leaders, they want control. And, and But uh, uh, you brought up an excellent point too, because ego can be bad. And you actually described how maybe the best way to have it is like a balanced ego. You know, it's ego with Humility. Absolutely. You know, like that's probably the exact answer, yeah. I reckon, is, is being um, being vulnerable enough to ask for I think having that confidence to back yourself in, but at the same time being uh, having the humility to then say, well, you know, I'm not an expert in you know, marketing, for example. Um, I need to engage with the right people to do this. And and probably at the time we didn't. We just kind of fumbled our way through things. And, and I think had we, again, hindsight's always a wonderful thing, but I'm sure I'd love to know what we could have done in, a, in hindsight, had we, um, you know, engaged with the right professionals externally. Or been open-minded and had exactly. the right people around you. Really. Exactly. So, And, and you, sorry, I interrupt you, but you were saying something about uh, with your industry now, it's like you're actually helping business owners relinquish that, not ego, but the, but the attachment to everything. Yep. What, what did you mean by that? So I think one of the perceptions is, is when you go down this path of outsourcing or offshoring is that potentially you're giving away control. And- I, I, that, that's actually not the case. And when you're building something that is dedicated and it is your own team, because of that, you as the business owner and as the client own the process. So you can effectively build a team with the checks and balances in the right places of how you would normally do it if it was onshore. And at the same time, you can also introduce additional checks and balances because perhaps maybe you're a little bit uncertain as to how things are going to work. So... Um, I think one of the things that a lot of business owners have, particularly smaller single operator types, is they are, and I've been known to be this, is they're control freaks, is they want to know that every single thing is absolutely perfect. So by having a, what is more as a dedicated offshore team, they're, they're reporting into you day to day. They're not reporting into the provider for feedback. If they've got questions or escalations, they're typically reaching out to the onshore manager saying, hey, you know, Let's do a quick chat about this particular project or ask some questions. So, yeah. Um, but even if you've got five to 50 staff or maybe yep. 50 is getting bigger, you've definitely released some some um, authority of 50 staff. But yep. even from that five to 20, yep. like it's there's definitely a point where it's like I can't be – yeah, I can't be across everything. Like, no. I, I, it just – you can't. Spinning too many plates. Yeah. You, for sure. You, 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 you freak out. It'd be too – your brain, you won't sleep. But, but, um, and, and what kind of what, what you're saying is definitely to, to, I guess, level up to that even 20 staff or so. Offshoring is a, a tool that can allow you to do so because it's a cost effective way to allow yourself to step out of doing every role in the business. Yeah. And therefore work on the business, generate more revenue. And yep. then grow, uh, grow either more offshore, but also you, I'm assuming people want to grow more onshore as well. Yep. Teams. And, and, and so I think it could that's actually a big be misconception. A yeah, you're, you're spot on. So I think the big misconception is, is when you go on an offshore path that all of our roles are going overseas. And I think that's probably the biggest misconception uh, that we've got in business is a sense that really if you build an effective offshore team, you're A, you're effectively leveraging your onshore business leaders to be able to, effect, to, to do more. 
But at the same time, you've also got a solid foundation, business found, operational foundation um, by way of efficiency and cost effectiveness that ensures longevity. So if I, if I talk about my, that retail business that, I was, uh, that we built, it became extremely expensive by way of operational cost to maintain that, that business ongoing. And if I look back, we really could have leveraged the offshore capability and, and I guess the short story is we ended up folding that business up um, after 10 years, which was crushing. But I think that um, looking back, by consolidating some of our operational team, we probably would have ensured all of the onshore staff's long-term future. And that often is a misconception. And I think that by having a good off- offshore team set up, your onshore team can do far, far more. Um, and I just think it's like it's an additional tool for Australian business owners to use in run to, to run your business because the reality is shit's expensive and and shit's also really hard. And it, it's kind of like when like when I when I first started learning about taxes and all that stuff, my old man used to say to me, "Hey, you can't play the game if you don't know the rules." Yeah. You know, and if you don't know who the players are. Yeah. And it's almost like that it's relevant towards what we're talking about because uh, outside of obviously taxes and things, but it's relevant to that because as a business owner, when you're looking for, okay, here's an operation, here's a task that needs to be done. This is what it would cost if I did it here. But as a business owner, my job is to ensure the success of the business. I believe I could do the task equally as good for a lower cost and do it over here. Therefore, you, you need to kind of know that it's there and and, and know that it is an option. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think knowing like when we first looked into it, for example, a cub, it was for low-level jobs and things. Yeah. But you very quickly actually learn that um, that you, you very quickly learn that no, that you can like you can build proper. Like people went to university; they're more educated than me. <laughs> yeah. You know, and <laughs> yeah. and that was probably the light bulb moment for me. Yeah. You know, so so Joe is the CEO of the business. Um, he approached me and said, "Look, I'd, I'd really like you to drive this front end and grow the business." So initially, we went overseas and. He showed me the offices and I was just, I was blown away. Firstly, the facilities were just like class A, incredible. And I was like, oh, shit, how good's this? And then you've got hundreds of staff that are, you know, senior software developers and senior accountants with, you know, CPA qualifications and you've got graphic designers and web designers doing all this really cool stuff. And I was like, oh, I've missed an opportunity big time here. I've really tripped up on this. I should have looked at this a long time ago Um, because my perception was call centres, data entry, low manual tasks. But it's also cool that you you learned firsthand how what you do now could have actually saved what you did before. For sure. And therefore you – I mean you you can give people that gift in giving that. Yeah, so I think that after coming back I was like, why don't why don't business owners know about this? Why isn't this more um, prevalent? Yeah, prevalent, accepted. Yeah, and, and I think that ultimately, if we look at the challenges that we solve, um, so obviously cost is one, and there's no there's no denying that the cost effectiveness is is a driver, but it has definitely shifted in the last eighteen to twenty four months, and I think that's because um, onshore talent here now, you know, if you talk about buyers and sellers markets in property. I guess if we talk about uh, an employee's or an employer's market, and it's definitely an employee's market because you just can't find talent here. Is it true? I actually got told this the other day. Is it true that the cost of offshore staff has increased because the demand, because the supply of onshore staff got so low that the cost overflowed to the offshore? Is, did, has that yeah, happened? It, it has. It's, it's definitely uh, had an impact. I think if we look at right now our, our appetite in the market, we've we've got about 120% more active roles right now than we did this time last year and we were busy last year. So so COVID uh, actually had a bit of a, a boost for it, you guys. It did and I think that when COVID happened, businesses started thinking broadly about how they wanted to operate on the, I guess, when they came out of COVID. Um, and I think also, as I mentioned earlier, probably the fact that working from home all of us, or having staff distributed wasn't all of a sudden such a big thing to grasp, you know, whereas before COVID – Business leaders said, no, nah, it's got to be an office. This person has to be in the office. I need to be able to walk up, tap them on the shoulder and tell them what to do. And I think that the COVID 
remove that barrier. And, and because of that, um, we saw an increase. But to your point earlier about um, wage increases overseas, absolutely. Like I think Australia is such a small economy in the scheme of, you know, the US, UK, um, and because you've got all of these locations all screaming out for talent, they've all got the same problems that we do, and that is that their economies are rebounding heavily, immigration has slowed up, so obviously it's hard to find talent coming into the country, and all those things have a compounding um, effect. And so how much are people paying for uh, through providers like yourself? How much are they paying for offshore staff? As in a salary? Yeah. Oh, it's hard to say because it really depends on which which country they're in, as in where, where they're looking. So for, for us, um, you know, you, you've, we're operating obviously out of Manila, so the Philippines, Vietnam and Malaysia. And depending on what the role is, it can really differentiate what it is. So um, Maybe we, like a basic, like a graphic designer. Uh, a graphic designer, say, in the Philippines uh, might range, depending on how experienced they are, um, salary cost could be a low-level graphic designer might be somewhere around sort of uh, ten to fifteen grand Aussie, you know, per annum. And then you start going up um, depending on their seniority. Like we do have graphic designers that are um, around forty k Aussie, you know, and they're senior designers. So I guess it just depends on what it is that the client's looking for. And well, what level of it? Do you want Picasso or do you want to Yeah, yeah. Do you want, do you want me to design it for yeah. you? Or do you want someone really good? So I think I think that's the um that just depends on the on the client. Do okay. you know? Um and tell me what about so I mean this is how how like we could use uh, offshore stuff, but I'm sure there's some tricks to the trade in terms of how to grow that offshore team, how to best yeah. manage that team, yeah. how to I guess keep them spread your culture, keep them one. I guess what are you, what's your advice on, on how to successfully grow and manage an offshore team? Yeah, so whilst cost is always a driver, my strong recommendation to businesses who are looking to establish an offshore team initially is to invest in someone more senior. And um, thankfully, and for a bunch of reasons, but uh, the first reason is by having someone who's senior, to, you've, you've already got – a history of success by way of their experience. You can. That's why we look at references. That's why we have CVs. You know, um, if it was about cost, you just hire the most junior person out of high school um, and give them a crack. But typically, that that is met with um, with failure. So, my recommendation for businesses who are going to be setting up a a team offshore or anywhere onshore um, is structure it like it's going to be for the next ten years and don't. Don't build a team to solve a six-month problem. Build a team that it's going to be part of your organisation for the next decade. So you're saying step one is actually find a team leader yep. for overseas. Well, so. invest in the most – and where, and if not possible, invest in the most senior experienced person that you possibly can. So if your budget doesn't allow for someone who is a team leader and who's got 10 or 12 years' experience, maybe they've got five. Um, if that's the option versus the, the experience of one or two years – then, then certainly go and invest in that because um, our data is showing that the businesses that invest in leaders to begin with are growing at nine times the speed. And so is the theory then after you've got that main person, you can onboard less experienced yeah. people Mid and juniors, to then yeah. work with that person. Exactly. So then ultimately what you're doing is is you're leveraging your own management for the future hires. That, that senior becomes really your pioneer to then – grow your team abroad on your behalf, um, which becomes incredibly powerful for you as an onshore uh, business to then have a, um, a team offshore that's effectively almost autonomous in a lot of instances, but you're spreading, you're not necessarily spreading your bandwidth thin to have to literally retrain every single person. So, so um, you have that guy, you call it the the, pi- the pillar, the yep. pioneer, you, you've you trained that person, they understand the culture, you, you've you built a, a bit of a team because obviously it's grown and yep. you, you brought people less experienced to work under that person and yep. you're kind of the pioneer. How are you then managing that team? So I, f- I think ultimately what you do is is a bit like your managers here onshore, they become responsible for their department um, and your initial leader is, is responsible for their department overseas. And um, so you're delegating your tasks typically through your team leader or directly, but ultimately your leaders or managers are responsible for the success um, of their team. How do you communicate? Look, I think that, again, COVID's made this really easy. You know, team, Zoom, it's so easy now to get on a call and have a meeting, you know, um, with with leaders. And I think that 
if we make two really easy assumptions, well, if we take two things as being a given, the first is you're going to hire someone that has to have great communication skills. Otherwise, you're not going to hire them. Um, so that, that's the first. The second is they're going to have the skills and capability that you need if you were hiring them onshore. If those two things are considered as um, priorities, then the rest becomes very, very easy. Um, whilst it's not easy in the sense that growing any team is challenging, uh, from a communication point of view, it's about it's about delivering the same channels that you already work within. So if your team, if you guys use WhatsApp, if you guys use Slack, if you guys use um, email, whatever it might be, that team member becomes an extension of that existing communication. So, so if you have a yeah, if you have a team chat for Australia, like we've got the Cub team chat. Yep. You, if you've got offshore, 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 offshore <laughs> staff, you have them in that chat. They're part of for the sure. team. They want. It's got to be one. If, if you want it to be again, so I'm, I'm obviously referring to an offshoring, and, and ultimately what that has is intrinsic value. So when you're looking at your business and you're talking with someone who wants to acquire your business. Um, you can say, well, I've got um, 20 staff onshore and I've got five staff offshore that are dedicated cub people and they're part of our organisation. They deliver on certain KPIs every month and they're part of our business and they've got cub emails and they've got O2 phone numbers and all the rest of it. I think that if we if we look at it in the sense of communication style, where the secret source is, is in that communication and integration piece. They are highly valued. They're part of you, your existing culture. They're trying to deliver on the vision of what Cub is the same way that your onshore people are. Um, they're doing the onboarding the same way your typical local employee would be. And because of that, they're empowered. So we need you to be doing A, B and C to help us get to D, E and F. And, and that then becomes quite a um, quite an exciting opportunity for, for these guys. I think that's crucial for people to understand. It's It's hard to... Like if you never see someone, they're not there, you barely talk to them, It's you, you're not counting them as an actual team member. It's yep. like, oh, here, I'm, just, I'm spending a little bit of money. To have to, yeah. You can't look at it like that. Yep. No, you have to exactly look right. at it as like, no, no, I've, I have employed a new person. He, yep. he or she is part of my team yep. and I am going to give them the same level um, of training, communication and integration as I am any other member of my team. Yep. And the reality is, if you don't, well, you're not going to – it's going to be the same as if you neglect uh, – if I start neglecting Laura and stop talking to her and, and yeah. stop working with her on things. Well, yep. obviously Laura's work is going to be less uh, exactly less right. efficient as if as a manager you're working with them. And maybe it, not Laura. She's pretty good it, autonomous. But it, anyone, <laughs> other people, she's looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's reaching for her stiletto to hit you with <laughs> it. Um, I think that it's absolutely right. Yeah, so if, if staff feel like they're part of something – bigger than themselves, then you're going to receive um, passion by way of output. And that's no matter what the, the borders are, onshore or offshore. Um, and that's something that I think once we grasp the communication piece and the integration piece, um, the deliverables become far easier. It's almost like you have to drop the word before the staff or employee. So it's not onshore or offshore. It's just employee. You have to treat it. And I think the best businesses take it with that approach. And um, effectively what you are is a global business. You've gone from being an Australian business, now you're a global business. I like that. Maybe we should get some offshore stuff, start sounding a bit more global. (laughs) Um, The concept is far more challenging than the reality. It's easy for me to say that, but having um, travelled overseas, the concept for me prior to experiencing it firsthand was far more challenging than the reality. And you've, um, I only know this because I know a lot of Cub members have done it with you, yep. but you actually take people to the offices. So, so <laughs> yeah, we do. You, like you've taken a group of Cub members before, haven't we you? We have. Yeah. So we've got, a, yeah, we've been very fortunate. We've got, we've got a few um, partners, what we call partners with from, from Cub. And um, in a normal world where the borders are open, we would normally uh, take, the, take the, the, the staff, sorry, take the clients on a trip via our three offices overseas. It's, Awesome fun. It's a shame that we haven't been able to do it in the last two years with, with COVID. But um, because as Aussies, we like to touch and feel things and see things for ourselves. So um, whilst the screen thing is okay and it ticks some boxes, um, being nothing beats being in person. So we even highly recommend that um, 
you know, if you were building an offshore team, the goal should be at some point to get over there and spend a few days in office. Um, once yeah, a year or? Once a year, yeah. once, once a quarter, depending on the team size and, um, you know, the goals or, or getting your, your team here onshore to spend time with you in the office. And I think what it really does is it creates what everyone's trying to do and that is culture, mm. you know. So, but yeah, to, to your point, we, we, we typically take guys overseas and we drink, eat and be merry and go through the offices and, um, you know, the feedback we get from that is it's almost our marketing, to be honest. I know that for marketing. a fact. I've, I've, I've spoken to Zane and Lee and, and other members and they said it was fantastic. They, they said the offices were amazing. And, but what I think the reason I brought up was because you've almost, you've taken the digital, like something that they can't see, it's offshore, it's not in my face, it's not integrated and mm. you've made it real. You're like, no, no, yeah. no, wait a second. Look, look at this office. Look at the people. This yeah. is your team. Like I think it is important. To, 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 to see it and, and to be there. And I just think it's it would be the kind of the equivalent of us allowing potential members to experience the club before joining. We don't actually do that, but <laughs> it would be the equivalent. Yeah, and I think that, um, again, if we think about the industry, the industry has got a lot of mystery surrounding it. And that is, and, and a lot of that's probably to do with data security. So, you know, like if our perception might be that we're sending our data offshore and they're working from, you know, who knows where. Um, who are these people? Who are these people? Where are they working from? What kind of um, measures are in place? And it just ticks a due diligence box for, for these businesses. And, and we are fortunate. We work with a lot, lot of um, regulated businesses that, you know, dealing with medical and insurance and all those types of industries that are, um, you know, heavy by way of process and admin and what have you. And it needs to be that level to support that type of client. And, and these uh, offshore staff, so they're technically employed by yourself, by, 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 by ASY Global. Yeah. And then uh, someone like myself would pay you, would pay you and mm. obviously you take a percentage of that, a clip of that, uh, and that's in exchange for the recruitment, the office, the, you know, the setup, the legalities, the HR. That yeah, type so of well, it's probably a good, a good segue. So the way in which the, the approach works is – you as the client become part of the interview process. So rather than just being delegated a team member and saying, hey, Dan, meet Jasper. Jasper's your new designer. And you're like, well, I don't know Jasper. Jasper, I didn't pick Jasper. He's not part of my club culture. You know, like I like guys that are really into A, B and C. And um, so effectively the same approach to you hiring someone onshore with the position description or going through a recruitment process or what have you, we mirror that process just offshore. So then effectively at the end of your interview process, you feel like you've got your perfect candidate. Um, so you interview them like you would anyone else. Exactly the same way you would anyone else. So then ultimately at the end of that, you say to us as a provider, um, hey, we really like Jasper. We want him to be part of our team. And assuming he accepts the offer to join, he legally becomes an employee of ASW. Uh, however, is a dedicated – the terminology is um, a seconded employee um, – you can call it augmented staff, but effectively he works for Cub and only Cub. Um, you are his, I guess his, his, his partner. He's not a shared resource across any other um, clients and he has leave and sick leave and all the other things that a, a full-time employee would have. We manage that on, on behalf of the client. But, yeah, so legally he's an employee of ASW and you're not having to worry about any of the HR red tape or the payroll red tape. Um, effectively – he reports into you and then we just have a management fee on top, which which basically gives all the services that you need and you can just focus on task delegation and, and building a, a team and, and integrating them. Yeah, it's makes it, I guess just makes it's a shortcut to, to, to building that team. Exactly. And what about some pitfalls? Are there some things people should look out for in terms of or what are things people should be aware of when trying to set up uh, offshore teams? Um yeah, there's a, there's a bunch. I think the first is to think about your own business and how it functions. So, and what I mean by that is is time zone. So, when you think about time zone, you know, um, where is your prospective team going to be based, and what's that time zone look like? How is it going to fit in with your own? So, we're, we're fortunate that our staff mirror Australian business hours, so it's it's quite seamless. We do have have clients that want and prefer staff actually follow. Um, the overseas business hours, which is only two to three hours behind us anyway. And the reason for that is they can delegate tasks in the morning and when they knock off at five or six, their team is still working throughout the evening. Um, so it really works in their favour. They can come in the next morning, 
check the work, this looks awesome, and then re-delegate. Um, but the default position is, is that our staff would start in line with Australian business hours. Um, so time zones is a, is a pitfall because if you're thinking about perhaps – Going um, to the Ukraine or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so if you've got a if, – if you don't mind your phone ringing all night or alerts popping up with questions about, you know, escalations that they're having challenges with, it can become quite unproductive because you're not there to have the visibility and support for that team member when they need it. Uh, like anyone in any industry, if, if there's no support when they actually need the support, it can become very unproductive. But so so the, the simple lesson is choosing countries nearer to Australia or closer in – line with the time with the with our time makes sense. Is, is the most ideal it does so where you can get a decent overlap of time zone uh it makes sense as far as um other pitfalls certainly i think it, it's depending on again the client industry that are in but certainly need to be wary of data security you know what's your liability if you're if you're handling um you know any kind of personal data what's the approach and if that data goes into the wrong hands what does that mean for you and your business um so data, data security is a big one. How do you protect against that though? How do you not? So you should up? effectively be looking for providers that have got what they call an ISO um, 27001 data security certification. And that's, I guess, the world standard. Um, so you should ask, if you're using an offshore provider, you should be asking, do you have the whatever you just said? Yeah. And they should be able to sh- not only say yes, but actually show it. Okay. Show, that's show. a very important point. Yeah. yeah. I think if uh, businesses are looking to, to go down this path where they are dealing with data, they need to be engaging with the provider. And, and I think it's one of those things that we take on trust as in, yeah, yeah, that'd be all okay until something goes wrong. And then when something goes wrong, what does that mean? So I think that that's, that's where having a, a provider, um, why you would engage with a professional provider that does it. Um, I think the talent sourcing approach is a big one. You know, if we look at really the success of teams, it ultimately comes down to the talent sourcing approach and not necessarily delegating staff, but giving businesses ownership of the team in which they're curating and, and building. That's what certain- do you mean by that? Well, I think that if you're going down the path of hiring a, an offshore team, who are the onshore managers who are going to be part of that team and, and delegating tasks? So if we think about hypothetically, if you're building out a marketing team, really your marketing manager onshore should be part of the hiring process. Okay. Um, they should feel like they're empowered to make this work rather than being delegated a team and saying that's your new team. You're like, well, I didn't build this team. What's happening here? And so. I, I guess that that's an important one. And that's part of the whole integration thing you were saying. It's got to be an integration. It is part of your business. That It needs to be fully integrated. The people that are responsible need to be part of the hiring. Yep. The people that you hire need to be part of the team communications, yep. uh, travel, For sure. uh, as much integration as possible. And, and perhaps the pitfall would be hiring an offshore staff expecting that you're just going to kind of, you know. Oh, that, that's probably one of the biggest pitfalls yeah. is that, and this is where outsourcing can be good because in outsourcing- I was going to say treating it like outsourcing is the wrong way to go. Yeah. So in outsourcing, if you think, if you think about retention within outsourcing, it's about 40%. That's really low. Staff, high turnover. In offshoring, our retention rate sits around 90 because staff feel like they're part of you know the cub vision, the cub team. So yeah. long as the owner of the business yeah. integrates correctly. So I think that when we- One of the things that, again, helps support that we talk about why would they engage with a um, provider is from a HR perspective. So the provider should really be, be, be giving you a level of governance, not only from data security point of view, but from a HR point of view, setting up KPIs, performance reviews, salary reviews on behalf of the client. So I think one of the things with offshore staffing is because you're not there in person, sometimes the opportunity to have those little chats or coffees about, hey, how are you going and how's your performance going? How do you think you're doing? Um, because that opportunity doesn't present itself, having some structure around reviews, evaluations is really important. And staff, all staff love the idea of receiving feedback. So I think that by way of a provider, if you're looking to go offshore, whether you go through an intermediary like a, a provider or not, structuring up the training, onboarding and the performance evaluations and KPIs, I think is really important because when you're not there, if, if you know that they're meeting their KPIs that you've set out, then I guess the concern or any hesitation then is dissipates pretty quickly. Awesome. I think that's a really good overview of, of uh, offshoring. I, I mean, I, I knew a fair bit about offshoring, but definitely 
<laughs> I didn't know that much, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, but Dan, th- thank you so much for today. Um, I-, I wanted to just maybe speak quickly about your experience with the club. Obviously, you've been here a long time. Um, um, I guess what have been your favourite things about uh, your time as a member and uh, perhaps a success story or, or, or I actually just read something about the Nudge Group, that, that that would be good. Yeah, so that's probably one of them. That's actually a really a really good point. So um, five years, you know, it, it feels like it was, it was yesterday, right? So, yeah, you guys hadn't didn't have Melbourne and I'm a Melbourne boy, so um, that's been exciting because I've introduced my old network um, to be, who are now members and still members in the Melbourne chapter. A lot of them are, found, are founding members of Melbourne. Yeah, guys yeah. You're in, you're yeah. Th- your referrals. <laughs> guys like Nick and those guys, yeah, yeah they're champions. Yeah. So I think um, it's been really enjoyable being part of the growth of Cup, to witness where it kicked off to where you guys are at now, where we're at now, a part of the group. So, you know, I, I think is is something that um, I'm really pleased to have been a part of. I think that, I've been really fortunate from a business perspective to create more so from a business point of view, but on a personal level, some great connections and some really good um, friends. friends out of this whole, you know, this whole relationship. It's been very, very um, satisfying in that regard. You know, so, you know, Nudge, so Steve, you know, is probably. Um, Steve Grace, our member who owns the Nudge Group, which is a recruitment um a recruitment firm, I believe, that specialises in high-growth startups, technology businesses. Yeah, so we, we've gone into a JV together, which has been awesome. So I, he is he's probably a testament to talking about the challenges of onshore talent. Um, effectively, what we've done is is build a, a full integrated solution whereby he can focus on delivering high-level uh, onshore roles and his clients can now deal with with, I guess, one holistic solution where if they want to complement it with offshore talent, they can. And given that the technology talent is so strong uh, overseas, um, we've now been working together on a, on a few partnerships and uh, deals and it's been yeah, really exciting and the feedback's been really pleasing. And so. that's an excellent example of a great partnership between two you know, club members but, but business owners and yep. leveraging each other's strengths and resources to provide clients a, a better, bigger service. I think that um, to answer your question, what have I really enjoyed? I, f- I feel I've utilised the network. You know, we, we use the Ask Marketing Girls to do some digital strategy stuff for us. You know, we've, we've utilised, uh, I used Paul Miller to do, when we sold a, my other business, which I didn't talk about, we sold a business and um, Paul handled the sale of that business for me. Um, Paul Miller, the founding partner of Deutsch Miller, who's also our commercial lawyers at Cab. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a jet. And having not gone through a lawyer in my um, first business, um, I was really quick to engage one in the second time. Uh, I can assure you. So, it's like that too. You hate him, but you need him. <laughs> you know, he, he was exceptional. And um, we, we sold that second business before my wife killed me. We had a baby on the way and I didn't want to sell it. I was probably a bit premature selling that one, but Paul was exceptional. So I think, you know, um, having that network, seeing the growth, um, utilising the group members, um, I haven't been disappointed once in that regard. It's been really, really exciting. Well, you know we love you um, so much and I'm so grateful for your time today as I am for your time as a member. Um, to the members, if you want to get in contact with Dan, go to your Cub app, type Daniel Breeze and you can message him directly and find out much more about him. Uh, to our listeners, uh, if you want to find out more about Dan Breeze and AS White Global, go to www.cub.club forward slash podcast. If you want to catch up with Cub uh, on social media, the, the app for Instagram is at Club of United Business. Dan, thank you very much. Champion, thanks. Appreciate Guys, it. hope you enjoy the show.